is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. I grew up in northern Indiana, in a trailer park that gave context to the abstract geographical phrase, the Rust Belt. As I've explained before, I was borderline feral, often wandering all day as a young child, getting into scrapes I'm still sometimes surprised I ever got out of. For all the emotional and relational baggage I'm still dealing with from childhood, that utter freedom to wander within the natural world left me with a tapestry of tangible sensory memories that still come back at the strangest times. The reek of duckweed on the surface of a pond, the suck of mud at my feet, the plaintive desperation of a train horn late at night, the way wood smoke on a soaking November dusk speaks of longing more than anything else I can think of. My sister, Shan, and I don't often get the chance to talk about the way those sensory memories call out to both of us, but occasionally one of us will say or write something that immediately stirs something in the other, and we'll reach out together across the years to our strange, shared childhood. On a recent bleak winter day, she posted a photo on Instagram in a cemetery, the twilight drizzle blurring car lights in the distance, with a caption I understood in my bones. She wrote, marveling at the connections made inside of me by the wet scent of hickory in the air on my evening ramble. End of year has me full of heart, but contemplative of soul, of the journey here, of the road ahead, marveling at the deep, deep water I drink from, the rush of the river. Most of us can relate to the deeper sentiments there, but the hook of hickory smoke in the damp air was what stopped me in my tracks. A flood of scents rushed back to me, The memory of wandering home from God knows where along broken pavement, that rich scent hanging in the evening air promising a comfort that was just out of reach. It got me thinking how many of my primal sensory memories involved wood and trees. The wind rushing through the high pines and birches along the shores of Lake Superior when we would camp there. My small frame riding the sway of the wind in the upper branches of a maple tree as a kid. The feel of the harsh bark of neglected apple trees we would climb in an abandoned orchard to shake free windfall apples so that our mom could make applesauce. That heart call of hickory smoke. The way the warmth of wood smoke turned hostile when the chimney of our wood-burning stove caught fire and melted the picture frames down our walls, nearly burned down the entire trailer while my sister and I were home alone. I was mostly just excited the fire trucks were for me. And even aside from those formative images, so many evocative flavors and aromas come from trees without us really thinking about them that way. Cinnamon is a tree bark. Maple syrup comes from tree sap. In the adult beverage world, the quinine that gives bitterness to tonic water and the angostura that flavors the eponymous bitters are both from trees. And that's before we get to the fruits and nuts we so often think of as springing forth fully formed from our supermarkets. We all have deeper relationships with trees than we realize, but today we're going to talk to some folks who have leaned into those arboreal connections and brought the flavors of trees and wood to some of our favorite foods and drinks, including beer and chocolate. As my sister concluded that Instagram post about the resonance of hickory smoke, be full, friends. Drink it all in.
In today's episode, you'll hear from the author of a book specifically about the flavor of wood, who traveled the world tasting wood-infused foods and drinks, and then went so far as to make cookies from finely ground pine dust, pesto from pine needles, and rolls from beech dust. We'll also talk with a brewer who specializes in beers brewed with forged tree ingredients, including bark, leaves, branches, and nuts, and a chocolate maker who uses a rare tree syrup in an evocative chocolate bar. Along the way, we'll discuss numerous examples of tree and wood-infused beers and chocolates. We'll start out, though, by hearing from one of my good friends in the chocolate world about a bar she recently sent me that is infused with that evocative smell of hickory smoke. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. tasting this yesterday I got this little stone fruit beach especially note along with the hickory so we were constantly saying that if you just take some peach pulp and put it in barbecue sauce and cook Mm -hmm. it down that's the note you'll get in this one That's my friend Shay, who runs the popular chalk coffee wine Instagram account I'll link to it in the show notes Shay is one of the closest friends I've made in the chocolate world, and she recently sent me the Vanilla Smoke 69% bar from Crow and Moss in Petoskey, Michigan. The cacao for the bar is infused with hickory smoke for flavors that are reminiscent of barbecued meats, but with fruity and dessert-like flavors from the cacao and vanilla. There's so much happening between the smoke, salt, vanilla, and fruity cacao, and it feels like those flavors should be at odds, but they blur so seamlessly it's hard to tell where one stops and another begins. The bar is a blend of origins, and Shay and I suspect either Madagascar or Dominican Republic cacao influenced the flavor profile. I'm getting some salty notes as well today. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if hickory, it's, I'm getting hickory salt notes in this one. I think it's interesting how gentle and sweet the smoke is in the aroma. Right. It's got a little fruit notes in it too, which is not very dominant, but it's the perfect balance of the salty hickory smoke and, you know, and I think we're probably right with the dominance of Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. In it. I think that fruitiness ironically pulls forward the woodiness of the smoke a little bit yeah agree hickory can be such a heady smoke like it 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 doesn't have like a concreteness to it like some smokes do like it just kind of is soft and permeates everything and i feel like that uh more fruity acidic cacao just kind of anchors it a little bit right absolutely agree so balanced so if you're able to set barbecue aside for a moment when you taste this are there any images that come to mind like anything it makes you think of it does if if I really take the barbecue part away it definitely reminds me of you know sitting outside on a cold day like not very very cold but fall weather day with a pizza sangria in hand That's interesting. The fruit kind of coming forward. 
it's the fruit comes forward, you know. It's perfect. It's been a while I've been to Petoskey, but Michigan in general has been so different from, you know, how it's here in Chicago and, you know, getting away into nature and with the beautiful, the water around and everything. It's mind-blowingly beautiful. Smoke is probably the most recognizable avenue through which most of us have experienced the flavors and aromas of wood, both in concert with food aromas during the smoking process if food is being cooked over a fire, and infused into smoked foods like barbecued meats. Episode 5 of Bean to Barstool was dedicated to smoke in beer and chocolate, and a recent short bonus episode looked at several smoked chocolates in particular, including Choconat's Up in Smoke Bar made with cacao smoked over a Thai aromatic candle, and four different bars from Somerville chocolate that were each smoked over different woods. The most common influence of wood on our alcoholic beverages is through oak aging. This is essential for wines, whiskeys, and many other spirits, and is finding growing use in beer as well, both with second-use wine and spirit barrels or fooders, or those made of virgin oak. Many of the flavors we recognize from bourbons and other spirits are derived directly from the oak. The characteristic vanilla note in bourbon comes from natural vanillins in the wood that are essentially chemically identical to what is found in real vanilla. Notes of caramel and spice are brought out through toasting the wood, That flavor of coconut you might pick up in some spirits comes from cis-oak lactones that, again, are nearly identical to one of the main aromatic compounds in coconuts. The organic chemistry behind wood flavors and aromas is fascinating, and Austrian food writer and ecologist Artur Cesar Erlach is more smitten by these flavors than anyone I know. After earning a degree in ecology from the University of Vienna and a postgrad degree in food culture and communications at the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Polenzo, Italy, Artur set out to figure out what wood tastes like. No, really. His 2019 book, The Flavor of Wood, In Search of the Wild Taste of Trees from Smoke and Sap to Root and Bark, follows his quest to figure out if there is one singular flavor that defines wood, and finds him tasting rare spirits in Genoa and wood-aged pickles in East Germany, and visiting with the man he calls the Swiss rock star of cheese. We recently talked on the phone, and I asked him how this curious obsession got started. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my Level 2 exam many years ago. I wish the Level 3 had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. 
If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. So it's really the combination of my two great passions. I grew up between the most northern part of Austria in an area which is called Wood Quarter, and that's where there are a lot of trees, and also on the east coast of Canada in Nova Scotia, so which is also full of, of mixed species forests. So I kind of grew up between forests of all shapes and sizes. And this really influenced me strongly because uh, then, then later at, uh, at high school, I got the possibility to also train as a cabinet maker which I immediately took because I, I really love wood and lo- enjoy working with it. And then back at, and then at once at university in my bachelor's undergraduate, um, I studied uh, ecology and every subject I could find, I, I kind of specialized into woodland ecologies. And, and my other great passion has always been food. So whenever we travel somewhere, there's things I connect with places is through the food I ate there. So I, the first thing that comes to mind is not a, a famous building or some kind of museum or whatever. It's really like the dish we had next to the museum. So <laughs> that's really Same my connection. Places. <laughs> and then of course, always really enjoyed, you know, cooking myself, like experimenting a lot with, with products and then, yeah, you know, just exploring the world of food in general. And it was during my ecology studies that I realized that many of our environmental problems uh, have actually to do with what we eat and how we produce it. And so this was the kind of, for me, this was the deciding factor to, to go into the food sector. Um, and there I found the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Italy, which is in the Piemonte region, some little bit, half an hour outside of Turin. And I was accepted there for a master in food culture and communications. And yeah, and there we did a, a big important part of this master is not just to learn about the food system as a whole, you know, in a classroom setting, but actually to go out and experience it and talk with the people working in it. Of course, being in the Piemont region, we visited many wineries and distilleries, but also like very small farms and huge international corporations. And during one of those visits to, to yet another winery, there was always quite a lot of of talk about you know how important terroir is for the for the wine and then the knowledge of the of the winter and like all the the fermentation process and everything and this what they were they were always going quite a lot into detail but then when it came to the uh, aging rooms where you had like those beautiful rows of barrels like some brick barrels or also bigger ones sometimes there was in, in comparison to what we learned before there was always in my taste a very a little amount of information it was just you know it's like this and this size of barrel, it's mostly oak, uh, the wine is aged in there for so and so long. And now let's move on to the tasting kind of. And that, with my kind of, you know, passion for wood and, and, and forestry and, and also with my knowledge as a cabinet maker, I knew that barrel making is actually an art form by itself. It's really difficult to make because you don't use any screws or glue or anything to hold it together. It's poorly compression fit and it still has to, you know, be watertight. So that's really impressive, an impressive feat. And so I just wanted to learn more about the barrels. And that's why one, after one of those tours, I just returned home and started researching it online. And this was really the moment where like this, I would say like a portal opened for me. And I realized how much influence wood and trees as a whole actually already have on our food. So not only, of course, in the, just the, bear, in the wine world and in the um, spirits world, maybe whiskey is uh, best known for, for its barrel aging, 
but also in so many other areas. Really, I was really amazed by it. And it somehow I, this way I have also found kind of how to combine my two passions because before they used to be always like parallel but never interacted with each other a lot. But this was really the combination, the perfect combination of it. I actually, at first I wrote my master's thesis about it and I had to, you know, just focus on two things for the master's thesis because I, I couldn't go on forever. And so I, I wrote about whiskey and tea. So whiskey, of course, with the, the wooden barrel. And tea is also is actually a tree, um, which has to, can be up to 60 meters high. And we just, you know, keep it this short so for e easier harvesting. And so the taste of the leaves. So I, I for, for the book itself, I define wood as being the tree as a whole from roots, bark, wood, sap, and leaves, but without the fruit. And I, I had already this pile of information and I really knew I wanted to do more research and like know more about it. And that's pretty soon after I realized, okay, I really have to write a book about it. So it's interesting going from being a cabinet maker where you're working with, with wood as a, like a material, as a utilitarian thing, and then going to being something that you savor with your sense of taste and your sense of smell. What was that transition like? Was there any kind of weirdness with going from it being a building material to something that you were tasting? Yeah, maybe at the beginning, but since I started with barrels, it was, there was not, there was not like this immediate direct contact. There was like this, uh, uh, distance between it but also then now of course looking back you know with making furniture you always have to sand a lot for days sometimes it's mm. very tedious but it's hugely important at, at the end of the whole day of sanding like you have wood dust everywhere and so back then I already actually ate it I just so looking back of course I this interaction already started many years ago but I just at the time of course I didn't think about it. What were some of the most surprising experiences you had in this quest for the flavor of wood? Uh, so the, the most surprising thing for me overall in the book was that I, at the beginning I set out to find the one defining flavor for wood. But the more and more I found products which already were influenced by wood and trees or I tried new variations for myself, the more I found that there is like a huge variety of flavors in, in trees and wood. And there isn't really a, a defining flavor. I mean, there's maybe notes you find in many, but mm -hmm. there is such a huge diversity with so many flavors ranging from uh, raspberry notes and of course the famous vanilla and uh, chocolatey and coconut kind of flavors, but also going into manuka honey and like very intense smoky aromas and all, all over the place. So it, it was salty even. So eucalyptus, for example, has quite a salty note with it. So it was really surprising to to see all the, the the huge diversity of flavors. Looking back at the experiences you had traveling and tasting different things, what are the ones that just immediately come to mind when you think back at this project? So one was definitely the, the apocalypse ash yogurt, which I found, which is made in the in, in in Kenya in a very dry or let's say in a region that's very marked by extreme weather. So they have a very long dry period and then they have quite an intense rain period and uh and they have uh, their very proud animal like herding uh, tradition mm -hmm. the, the cows they, don't, they give milk of course only during the rainy season because afterwards they need all the energy for themselves or all the water and so of course people were looking for a way to preserve this this abundance of milk during the rainy season and also use it in the, the dry season and maybe I think it's important as a background to know that in Africa, there, historically, there was never any cheese culture developed. Uh, and, but they found a way, which I personally think is even more interesting, to be honest, 
is that they, through probably hundreds of years of experimenting, they found out that if they used the charcoal from a very specific kind of tree, ground it up into a powder and mix it with the milk, it kind of results in this blue-gray kind of yogurt thing, hmm. which stays fresh in a desert climate for six months without any wow. refrigeration. And it's full of nutrients and has a really great taste. So I tried it with different, I tried it with beech wood here, which is quite common here around Vienna, and it didn't work at all. So it really has to be this kind of tree or it just doesn't work. Um, but I think it has a very strong antibacterial microbial kind of components in it, which kind of really slow the, the process. So the, the one thing that was also quite, quite interesting is a milk product again, but this time it's from Switzerland and uh, made by, you could really call him the rock star of cheese in Switzerland. So he has man, many, many like huge international awards for being like for really creative, excellent tasting products. He's exporting actually a lot to the U.S. And, um, and he developed uh, like a soft cheese, which is uh, aged in the cambium of spruce trees. So the cambium is the living layer of a tree between the, like the hardwood on the inside and the bark on the outside. And it it's full of like vitamins and micronutrients and things. And he is aging uh, his soft cheese in those in, in strips of fresh cambium. And it gives it just a crazy, delicious taste. So the, of course, the the closer you are to the to the to the rind, so where the where the cambium is, the more intense it is. But the the more you go to the inside, the kind of the more subtle the flavors get, but they are much more diverse. Um, and you have this really strong resinous, resinous um, kind of lemony, fresh forestry notes, uh, but then also a bit of nutty nut flavors, and so. And it's, it's really a delicious uh, cheese product. So I visited him and like, helped him with his production and really, um, yeah, and also left with a car full of cheese, of course, right. <laughs> afterwards, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> so, so that was a really great experience as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, I was particularly interested, of course, in the uh, chapter on wheat beer aged in mm -hmm. Larch. Tell me, all about that project and kind of what led to it. What was the initial experience that, that got your interest? This was a, a very interesting thing. And it all started at the craft beer festival here in Vienna, which uh, is of course, Austria, like Europe as a whole is in the whole craft beer scene is a bit, um, it started a bit later than in the US, but now it's going strong. And so there's a craft beer festival every year. And I came by this stand from a quite well-known uh, German wheat beer brewery, the Schneiderweiser, they're called. And they, there is, I uh, overheard uh, someone at the stand talking about a, a white, uh, like a wheat beer, which they age in old wine barrels. And I was, of course, immediately interested. I wanted to know more, know more about it and then also got the possibility to, to taste it. And although I, I wasn't the biggest fan of the flavor, to be quite honest, um, because the combination of like the red wine notes and white wine notes with the like dark weird lager kind of wheat beer thing was a bit uh, was a bit strange, but it, I just liked the idea. And the guys at the at the stand realized it, that I was really excited about it, and they kindly enough gave me the contact details of the the head brewer from the brewery. And I called him up, and he was really excited and like invited me to come by. And so I visited him for the first time and we had a bit of a tasting there and he explained like why he, he, he's doing that with the barrels. So he was really, he, I think he has a lot of connections to the US, to many breweries there. And of course there he saw you know, many breweries um, aging it in, in bourbon barrels or whiskey barrels, their beer. 
And so that was his uh, kind of inspiration for doing barrel aging. And I think he had, at that, that point, he had already started some five years ago before. And, and he started with the, the bourbon thing, but then he saw that it really overpowers the flavor of, of, his, of his beer. And he wanted to find a different way that kind of doesn't overpower it, but like support it in its flavor notes. And that's how he came um, to, to wine barrels. And he was quite happy with it, but of course not. It, he also knew it wasn't like his, it wasn't his favorite kind of beer, let's put it that way. But we tried it and he was really open for things. And so I, I, I took a few beers home and he said, if I ever have any, you know, come across any ideas or so, how, we, how he could age his beer in barrels, I, I should just, you know, let him know and maybe we can do something together. And of course I was re really excited about this kind of opportunity. And immediately coming home, I tried different kind of wood types, which I thought could work very well with his beer. I had quite a few samples uh, with me. And I, I also uh, read into the history of barrels and realized that many, like the Celts, of course, they were the inventors of the barrels. And they, they originated actually in that area where the brewery is nowadays. They used to make, at the, at the beginning, they used to make barrels from softwood, so from fir trees or um, large trees. And so I really took that as an inspiration and then I also tried to mix his, uh, his beer with the kind of uh, large wood or, or uh, fir wood. So I started to, to try to combine this kind of dark wheat beer flavors with the fresh kind, kind of thing from the, from the large wood specifically. And, and I really liked the combination. So I thought, okay, why not? And I called him up and he was really excited about it and invited me back. And, so I did a few weeks later and, and gave him kind of a, a sample to try. And he, he really liked the combination as well, which I was really happy about. And he commissioned uh, two barrels uh, to, to try uh, aging his beer. And fortunately enough from a previous chapter I already had quite a good connections to a really excellent barrel maker who I called up immediately afterwards. And he said, no, let me, let me see. And fortunately enough, I think they are doing it in the fifth generation now or so, the barrel making. So there's like a huge wealth of knowledge. And fortunately enough, his dad remembered that he many, many years ago, he made one barrels with, with large wood and he knew how, that it works. And so he, he was happy to do it. We toasted only very, uh, quite very subtle, like a very uh, basic toasting on the inside. And then uh, at the barrel makers, they also uh, washed it out quite strongly on the inside with like hot water to get out like the intense notes to make mm -hmm. it, you know, that it doesn't, I really I was afraid that it would overpower the beer in any way. So that's, that's why we kind of pre-treated the wood in, in that respect. And yeah, and then it was shipped to the, to the brewery and, um, and filled and then the long waiting period began. Right. But, but some, I think it was some eight months or was it 12 months? I'm not, I'm not sure anymore, to be honest. Then uh, I got, they sent me the first samples and it turned out they, they really worked well. It had like this really good, like uh, dark uh, wheat beer aromas combined with uh, a bit of a resinous notes. And then uh, for me, at least there were quite a, a lot of dark fruits in there as well. And then also a bit of cedar. So it was a really great combination and and they they made a special edition out of it it was called so schneiderweiser tapix aventinus Barrick grand cru large and it was all bought up immediately by an a u.s importer i think i think in the new york area yeah i missed it unfortunately i, yeah. I wish i'd known it was coming out <laughs> <laughs> so the reviews overall were quite positive and people tasted uh, many things in there um everything from licorice and so and one guy actually wrote it tastes like licking over a wooden boat 
<laughs> I never tried it, but I have to believe him on that. Yeah, no, but it was really an awesome experiment. I'm not familiar with the flavor of larch at all. I don't think I've had anything aged in that. Can you tell me a little bit of just what that raw larch character would okay, be? So, the, the, so there are, the large flavor, that's one thing, which of course you have those resinous notes, which I think you would expect in, in any kind of soft wood. But then something which is quite surprising for me always is that it's quite sweet. So it has quite a strong sweet note. Um, and then it has, of course, like a, a bit of greenish note sometimes you could, you could put in there. And then, of course, the cedar flavor, I think, which, which many people know from like the, the smell mm. from, from shingles. You mentioned that it tastes good together, but like, were you able to recognize what that interaction was between the larch and the character of the beer? Yeah, 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 definitely. Because I, I had, fortunately, I had still one of the samples with me, so I could compare it and like figure out what the differences were. So in my opinion, it, it, um, it balanced it quite well. Um, so you have the... I think with those, I think, do you call it bock beer also in, in, mm -hmm. in English? Yeah, yeah. They, they tend to, you, I think you taste alcohol, in my opinion, mm -hmm. quite strongly. Whereas in this one, this was gone, this sensation kind of this sharp. So that, that was kind of balanced out a bit um, on the alcoholic side. But then you ha it added this kind of resinous note and cedar note, which of course wasn't there before. And also the dark fruits weren't this present before, I think. But I think they were in the beer already, but it was just wasn't like so much in the foreground. So it really kind of yeah. took that to the foreground. It's also now that you said it's also the, there was a bit of a cinnamon note in there. Oh, okay, sure. And so that, that goes well with, with, with kind of resinous cedar notes. So, yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to taste that. When we spoke last week, you were telling me about the beer that was inoculated with wild microorganisms in the forest preserve there in Austria. Can you tell me more about that project? Yeah, so that's a, a brewery. Or, or actually, it's a brewmaster from Big Brewery, and his, he has kind of this side fruit project, and it's, he's actually called Keesby, uh, so that's his name, his family name. So he, he produces his line, his kind of specialty beer line on the side, and they are called uh, wood beers. Uh, directly translated and every year he has like this special edition focused on one kind of tree and but mm. of course he is not always using the same things from the tree so there was uh, some years ago he made one with uh, black uh, black pine and he used the needles in the brewing process mm. and then he also had like an open wet in the forest so there was like under the trees, so there was like stuff falling into it. And so, on. so it was like, but it, it tasted really good. And uh, I had it on a different occasion. I had it taste tested on, um, with comp in a comparison with many other beers for, for microorganisms in it, like the sequence, the sequenced basically mm -hmm. and the DNA. And it had like off the charts. It was like crazy. There were so many things in there. But it just tastes, it really tasted good. So there was no off flavors or anything. He, he really knows what he's doing. Sure. And um, so just uh, think two years ago, he, he made a very interesting one with wild pear, which is quite important mm -hmm. here in Austria because they, they used wild pear for many things. And so he did uh, like a twofold thing. The first thing was that he filtered the mesh with flowers and leaves from the wild pear. So it, mm -hmm. he filtered it through. And then afterwards, in the first ward, he added like big tea bags, if you want to call it like that. And he used uh, the branches from the, from the tree shipped them up and then toasted them. And then he put them in those big tea bags and put them in the first wort. So to get a really interesting flavor note. So he really tries with every different tree, he tries to use different parts of it. Um, there was one he made with oak 
And so, of course, he had his own, like he selected the one oak tree and had his own oak barrels made and then aged the beer in those oak barrels. So every year there's a different variation coming out. And it's, it's yeah, he has a really good co collaboration going on with the Austrian state forest, if you want. And then, yeah, they use his, his beers for his presentations for, uh, as, as presents for professional visiting them or politicians areas. When they're inoculating that out in the open, is does that end up tasting kind of like a lambic from Belgium? Like you get that same kind of fermentation or no? No, 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 not at all. Uh, so it, it was like, it, it, it tasted a bit like a Bock beer actually, that now that you say it. it, it was very strong. So that, that was the surprising thing for me. Uh, I saw, I expected like, you know, a bit of a on the sour side and stuff, but but not at all. So it was oh. like, yeah, so it was like a, a strong Bock beer kind of like intense notes, dark notes, and then yeah. So you mentioned in the book that you had mixed reactions from people. Tell me a little bit about the range of reactions you got when people you know were caught up in in the enthusiasm of what you were doing. <laughs> so of course, with people that I, I I started with at the university in Italy, you know, everyone was crazy about food and trying different things. So yeah, everyone was excited about it, you know, trying it, and you know, because everyone was really open. But of course, then when after my studies coming back to Austria with my other friends, which are not necessarily from the food sector, they were kind of the being okay, what kind of crazy stuff is going on there? <laughs> But but they very soon, you know, I started easy on them, to be honest, at the beginning, um, you know, just with, as, as, as almost like I started, you know, with barrel aged things and, you know, just going to a cocktail bar and like ordering different like whiskeys or so. And then, you know, just like tried to tell them about it and how they could focus on it. Um, but of course, over time, I got more and more like uh, into the crazy stuff, if you want to call it like that. And and I also invited them for for dinners and so and we tried like uh, pine needle pesto or <laughs> um, bread made with uh, beech wood like sawdust but of course very fine like uh, fine sawdust. There were these cookies made with pine bark in it. They're like almost Oreo kind of things. <laughs> and and but most of them were really really open to try it and actually enjoyed it. So that was a big relief for me because I did it towards the end of the book. And I thought, okay, now I really have to do kind of let other people try it. And not that I'm just, you know, crazy and imagining all those good flavors. And But it turned out that they really enjoyed it and they're really excited about it. And also gave me quite a few inspirations and like different flavors, which I, I didn't uh, taste myself. Or, of course, they connected it to different things. There was only one person who, who was really flat out refused to, to trying it, <laughs> but it's okay. You know, it really adds like adds spice to the whole thing, and and it was also quite interesting. You mentioned going to uh, a cocktail bar and tasting different things. I loved the chapter when you were able to go to um, is it Velier or Velier? Velier, mm -hmm. um, and. It, they just kind of opened the treasure chest of all the the different flavors. <laughs> Tell me about some of that experience and some of the noteworthy things you tasted there. Yeah, so that that tasting room is just crazy. I mean, it must be the the three. It, no, it, it it must be. It is. It definitely is like the best uh, experience you can ever have as a spirit enthusiast. They have everything in there. Like um, so, maybe as a background, quickly, Valley areas. Um, Italy is foremost rum importer, and uh, but they also import like natural wines and all kinds of spirits from all over the world, and so they 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 have everything and they have the best connections also to to all of those distilleries, and so they get sometimes batches which it, others just don't get, and then uh, especially with rum they they age it they don't bring the barrels to Europe and age it here but actually let it age 
in the tropics, so they have a huge angel share, but the the then like the flavor intensity is such a huge difference. But but so they had they had me try many different rums and, um, and all kinds of spirits. Um, but one thing I think the biggest thing which I took away from there before that I was always under the impression that if you kind of the flavor of wood is the best thing to happen to a spirit. So mm-hmm. if you age it in a barrel, it's automatically good. It has to be like it. And I think it's also, that's one thing that has been communicated like in marketing or so with many spirits that, you know, when it's aged for this and this long in a barrel, it's just perfect. Mm-hmm. And that's, and there I really got uh, learned a, a lot because they really not only told me, but also showed me that uh, wood aging in wooden barrels is not necessarily the best that can happen to a spirit. It is for many spirits, but not for all. So there were those two rums, um, and they they had me try it like in in those dark uh, dark, dark glasses where you don't see the content, mm-hmm. like the color of the contents, like it's a blind tasting. And uh, and they filled uh, uh, with two different rums and gave me to try it. I, I tried the first one and I and it was super smooth. So really like you know took out all the the like the high notes and it was really really good and i thought okay that's definitely aged in a barrel it has to be and then you got all those banana flavors and chocolate notes and spices going on in there and it was really great drink and then they gave me the, the second glass and uh, i tried this one and this was this was like really it was still very good but it was like really like sharp notes if you like the very strong like it was really and i thought okay that's definitely the one that's not aged in a barrel and probably as you expect already now, it was, it was of course the opposite. So, <laughs> so yeah, in just with this one tasting, they really like threw my whole theory on, on its head. Uh, have you had any new experiences with the flavor of wood since completing the book? Yeah, so every once in a while I discover new things that are strongly influenced by wood um, or tree or coming from trees directly. So. If, a few months back in, in spring, uh, I, I tapped um, a few birch trees around the house here, as I already did in the book, but I tapped a few more. And I also ordered in from Estonia, from a producer, I got like a birch syrup, homemade. And that was a really great discovery. So I still use it for this ice cream, with vanilla ice cream and so. So it's because it, it's not even so sweet as you would expect it, but it has like many in like a licorice kind of direction and um, also juniper berry flavors mm-hmm. in there and so that goes really well with, so it's a good vanilla ice cream so I'm, I'm constantly trying of course different things uh, in cooking with wood so also just adding oh yeah the, the other day I made um, I made just a simple yogurt with raspberry jam in it mm. and instead of uh, instead of cinnamon which is actually a tree bark by the way, I used uh, ground up pine bark and it really is, it's a really great combination. So you don't, of course, there's no cinnamon flavor in there, but you have these resonance notes and so, and if you grind it fine enough, you, you don't realize it, that it's any, any different than cinnamon from the consistency. Sure. And yeah, so I, I both, I find products all the time, which are influenced by trees. And then I also try quite a bit. Since we last spoke, Artur has released videos on how to make hazel bark pancakes and Christmas tree Oreos, like with your actual Christmas tree. Actually, he's done an entire video on how to cook with your Christmas tree. I'll link to those videos in the show notes. It's an unusual quest Artur is on, and I am all about it. As our talk concluded, Artur discussed his growing interest in foraging for wild foods. Our next guest is a brewer who brews extensively with ingredients foraged from the brewery's woodland property in southern Illinois, 
crafting beers that are inseparable from their place of origin. Nestled into the woods and low hills of southern Illinois, about a dozen miles east of the Mississippi River and about an hour and a half drive southeast of St. Louis, sits Scratch Brewing, a brewery born of a love for this region where the edges are allowed to grow a little wild. It's a brewery committed to brewing beer that can't be brewed anywhere else. The brewery is hard enough just to find, down a narrow country strip of pavement wending between pastures and fields that ends in a T-junction, with a trail of gravel leading into the woods and a crude wooden sign indicating the brewery is still ahead, hidden in the trees. After parking, you descend a meandering staircase of stones salvaged from the property into the Scratch Beer Garden. In the taproom itself, a hand-painted mural of a dragon-like forest spirit stretches across one wall. Dozens of jars full of various foraged plants line the wall behind the bar, with more plants hanging from the ceiling to dry. The tap list on any given day might include beers brewed with dandelions, chanterelle mushrooms, spicebush, persimmons, burdock, or dozens of other foraged or locally harvested plants. And then there are the tree beers. Marika Josephson and co-founder Aaron Clyden love trees and have brewed countless beers with nearly every part of the different species of trees surrounding the brewery. On my first visit to the property on a beautiful spring day in 2017, I tasted their Pine Needle IPA, whose lightly resinous character of drooping needles dovetailed beautifully with the beer's gentle hops. The barrel-aged hickory stout offered images of a comforting campfire, damp flannel, a hint of whiskey, and a slightly wild fermentation. On a following trip, I tried beers with black cedar, fermented acorns, maple, oak, cherry bark, and others. Beers that seem to speak with the voice of the forest, with wild edges but vibrant hearts. I spoke recently with Marika about these forest beers. Marika has a PhD in philosophy and has written a manifesto of sorts about farmhouse brewing called Keeping the Farm in Farmhouse Beer, and I am always excited to gain insights from her. As you'll hear, Scratch's experimentation with tree beers began with our old friend, Hickory. So why don't you share with me a little bit of how the idea for the tree beers came about? How did you decide to start using all different parts of a tree in a beer? We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Final Gravity Issue 4 is now available in the Bean to Barstool shop. This fourth issue of our zine telling intimate, human-centered stories from the world of beer is full of great articles, including Kate Power of Lady Justice Brewing talking about why she might be done with beer festivals, Ukrainian beer writer Lana Svitinkova writing about the Zeugel brewing tradition in Germany, UK writer Matthew Curtis talking about the blend of old and new in the Cascale tradition in Manchester, and many more. We believe passionately in this project, and if you believe the story of beer is ultimately a story about people and relationships, we think you'll love Final Gravity as well. You can order the new issue from our shop on beantobarstool.com, or you can also subscribe, including subscribing for your brewery tap room or break room, or you can subscribe and sign up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash beantobarstoolzines. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, so it started with one kind of folk use that we ran across, which was using hickory tree bark to make a syrup. 
And um, that was when our third partner, Ryan, was uh, still at Scratch. And he was the one who stumbled on that use. What he saw uh, for how that was incorporated into the syrup was that the bark was toasted, was boiled, um, and, the sh and the sugar was added to it. I can't remember if the recipe that he found required boiling the bark for a full 60 minutes or not, but that's how we ended up interpreting it for our brew house. Knowing that, that it would have to be boiled, we thought, well, we'll just go ahead and put it into the boil. We just boiled it for 60, which is how we had already approached using a number of different herbs and spices, and it ended up turning out beautifully trying that and understanding the flavor of the hickory tree kind of opened up a can of worms, I guess, where all of a sudden we wanted to try every single other tree we could get a hold of in our woods. Um, so we tried maple and birch and sycamore and cedar and um, just everything we could to see what flavors could be con conveyed through the bark. After, after doing a bunch of those different beers, we then thought, well, what if we take a single tree and then use as many different parts of that tree as we can to see what different flavors could be conveyed by the tree through all the different parts that we could collect from it. So for maple, for instance, that meant tapping the tree um, and getting the, the sap and then also using the bark, which we had discovered worked really well to to convey a maple syrupy kind of flavor actually without making maple syrup. The buds are really bitter, so that added bitterness. So that was a really interesting project because we realized how many different flavors there were in all the different parts of, the, of trees. I know with a lot of your foraged ingredients, you're very dependent on the seasons and when things are you know, growing and, and able to be harvested. Is that true with the trees? Are there different trees that are best used at different times of year or do you kind of use them whenever? Yeah, um, we do harvest different parts of trees at different times, knowing that they have a maybe a more vibrant or robust flavor profile at different times of year. So obviously the sap only runs, you know, at the very end of the winter. That's an obvious one. But there are other things too, like we found sassafras, for instance, which we don't use the root, of course, because it's uh, a carcinogen. But the, um, the leaves, when they first start leafing out, they have this unbelievably tropical aroma. Um, in fact, when we were astonished because we had used the leaves in the past when it was kind of like the height of summer. And that's actually most often when we'll harvest them. And when we harvest them to dry them and use them for the winter, we harvest them kind of right at that peak point in the summer. And so they already, at that point, they convey uh, a really nice tropical aroma. But at the very beginning of the spring, when they're first starting to, to leaf out, they have this really just pronounced tropical aroma, just, you know, what they are when they're green times 100. Um, and that was something that we discovered much later on after we'd already been using the, the part for quite a while. Do, we do try to harvest them at different times of year to try to capture certain flavor profiles that we think are better um, at different times. There's obviously not really a blueprint for how to do a lot of this stuff. So walk me through the trial and error of developing one of these beers. I mean, you're working in some cases with leaves and bark and nuts and all these different things. What was that process like? 
Yeah, so it, it was truly, it's, it's a layered approach to beer making that we, it didn't come all at once. When we decided to start working with trees intently, as I was describing before, you know, we started with the barks. You know, after working our way through a lot of the barks, we maybe would have tried the, the leaves at a certain point just to see what they tasted like. We tried the bark at a certain point just to see what they tasted like. We did a sap series, which was just tree saps. So it wasn't anything else from those trees, but just the sap to see what that tasted like. After having done that for, you know, five or six years, we were able to understand what the different parts were giving. And so when we decided to put the parts together to create a beer that was just that tree, we already knew here's where we get bitterness. Here's where we get um, an impressive kind of aroma. Here's where we get extra sugar from the sap, let's say. Here's how it ferments. We know what all those individual flavor profiles taste like, and here's how we can put it together um, in a cohesive way. Are you using the same base beer for these, or do you change the base beer to adapt to the flavor of the different trees? More often than not, we change the flavor of the base beer. There are a couple reasons for that. I think one is just purely an aesthetic choice. We, and especially Aaron, to be honest, really likes to capture the spirit of a tree, I would say, and to try to show through beer what, what that tree is, is saying, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a poetic way of putting it maybe, but rather that I feel like maybe it's a bit more scientific to take the same base beer and treat it seven different ways with seven different trees but perhaps a bit more poetic to try to understand what the tree has to tell us and then to interpret that through beer. I think partly too, certain parts of the trees show off better. And maybe this is just a way of translating that poetic way of say putting it, but certain parts of the trees show off better in different styles of base beer. So for instance, um, sassafras leaves being so tropical and bright, they really do shine through better in a blonder type of beer without the extra caramel malts or mm -hmm. more roasted malts. Whereas something like the maple beer, especially if we're using the sap, which has so much like mineral character and kind of an, a whole unknown quantity because we don't really know what else is in the sap from a chemical point of view. So we don't really know you know, how to adjust it at, you know, as you would adjust the water profile. So with that beer, we almost always go for a darker beer with darker roastier malts because it works a little bit better with that, that own unknown quantity of the sap and the, the quality of the, the flavor experience after it's done fermenting. We found that in blonder beers, the sap tastes a little bit more medicinal. So those are two kind of two examples of, of two sides, two extremes um, from one side to the other. I don't recall if I read this in your book or in an article on Scratch, but uh, it was describing the process of walking into the woods with like thermoses of hot water and just steeping different ingredients to see what kind of sensory characteristics they gave. Walk me through an experience of doing that where you're going to try a tree, you're going out into the woods, maybe early on when you were starting to do this and 
kind of set the scene for what an experience like that would have been like? We still do. We still do this. Um, not as often as we did when we were beginning our experiments, but we still do this if we're running, if we run across a plant we've never used before. Usually it's Aaron who's out in the woods collecting something or doing something Aaron-y out there um, and maybe cutting down a tree for his log cabin or something. And he'll come back with something that he found in the woods and um, we'll kind of break it apart and smell it, maybe even chew on it for a second, see what it tastes like. We would only do that if we knew what we were tasting sure. <laughs> first, for sure. So this is something that's already been identified. But we'll we'll take that into the brewery. We don't usually bring a thermos with us. We'll take it into the brewery and then basically make a tea out of it. So we'll heat some water up to boiling and then steep that ingredient in a jar. Um, you know, let it set, sit for 10 minutes and taste it. Let it sit for an hour, a couple hours sometimes and taste it. We'll see what it tastes like during kind of a shorter hot water extraction. And then once it's had some time to sit, bitter things really do get bitter the longer that they sit. And that's something that, you know, becomes more obvious after we've tasted it a couple of times, you know, and then, you know, we get that bright aroma maybe at the beginning. Um, so it gives us a good sense of what that ingredient is going to do if we were to put it into the boil. If somebody were to come into the brewery who has no familiarity with your beers or these ingredients and they taste, say, the oak beer that has all these different parts of the oak, are they going to taste that and think oak? Or is it more just kind of a, a synergy of flavors that maybe doesn't tie directly back to our expectations of those woods? I think that most of the trees, I think that they do convey what we expect them to, to some degree. Yes, I think that the oak has all of those amazing vanillins, um, you know, stone fruit, chocolate, um, sometimes depending on how we toast the wood characteristics that you would pick up from, from barrel aging for sure. And the maple, as I was saying before too, um, because we, particularly because we add the bark does taste maple And even we made a walnut sap beer a couple of years ago. And that one to me tasted so much like Nochino, like it had this underlying mm -hmm. green walnut kind of thing underneath. I thought, wow, yeah, this really does taste like something that's made out of a nut when that was just the sap. Other things are maybe a bit more surprising when we've played with sycamore bark, which I don't think anybody really knows, like, what does a sycamore tree say to me about what it tastes right. like or smells like? Well, when we tasted that, uh, when we uh, toasted that bark in the oven, it had the most incredible aroma of apple cinnamon, like apple cinnamon mm. Cheerios. It was crazy. And the sassafras leaves too. Uh, even if you use filet quite often as a, um, a spice or a thickener, for soups. I don't know if you necessarily even can tell that there's a tropical or citrus aroma to sassafras leaves because they've already been ground up mm -hmm. and they've probably already oxidized to such a degree that you can't even really smell it anymore. But when they're fresh and you just crumble them up in your hands, yeah, that one, I always tell people that one smells like Fruit Loops. <laughs> so if somebody's coming to scratch and they've never had that beer before, they, and I say, Hey, this smells like fruit loops. They smell and they're like, Holy crow. That smells like fruit loops. <laughs> and then I would also say with some of those maybe more common trees or, or flavor profiles, like from Oak or maple, um, there's some surprises in there too. Like, I think that 
with the maple beer, when we make that beer and we're able to get some of the buds in, there's a real bitterness underneath too that that is a little surprising. Or, you know, the oak the oak beer is also it's a bit wild. You know, it's not like a barrel aged beer per se, where the wood has been treated in this very specific way. And we're so used to drinking barrel aged beers. So we kind of we have a I think we have a pretty good knowledge of and of what you know that vanilla sort of profile is and and we're able to um when i say we i mean people who you know work with oak you know are able to get the the toast levels the way they want to convey certain flavors but with our oak beer where we're also including the green leaves which are quite tannic and acorns too the fermented acorns you know there's a there's a, like a wild fermented character from the acorns, there's a um, an interesting bitter quality from the leaves. So definitely some some unusual things too that are background notes, but they do add something new and different. Have there been any instances of trees that are ostensibly edible, but you've tried and just can't really get them to speak in the way that you want to? I think birch has been a tough one. Oh gosh, I haven't even talked about wild cherry. We've been brewing with that all all uh, winter, and that's another great one. The the cherry bark is so cherry like, but also a little bit bitter and, and tannic. I was reminded of cherry because birch is similar in the sense that um, there's a whole like underlying bitterness underneath birch that you know even though people use birch sap often or or boil that down, it's so bitter. And we've made a couple of birch beers, but they've had to rest for so long, almost a year sometimes to just mellow. I don't think we've quite captured that tree the way that we want to. Now we have river birch here, and that's a little bit different than a white birch that you might find somewhere else. So that might be part of it too. There might be another birch that might work better for beer. And it's perhaps it's not ours really. Yeah, but the, the cherry, the cherry bark beers that we make um, are another one that they do have to mellow for sometimes six months before we let them, let them out into the world. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. It has, when I was growing up, my dad would give me licorice root to chew on. Uh, you can make teas out of it and stuff like that. Um, and I always get a little bit of like licorice root flavor in that beer. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can see that. Are there trees in your woods that you would still like to work with and haven't had the chance to yet? do more with the sycamore that I guess that's another one that while the bark when it is toasted smells amazing that's been hard to actually infuse into the beer uh, I wish there was a way that we could capture that a little bit better so I'd like to keep working on that one the uh we haven't done like a, a single tree walnut beer either and I think that would be fun to work with um we did the sap of course, there are no nuts when the sap is running, but mm -hmm. usually if that's the case, if we're making a beer where we want a couple of different parts of a tree, but they're from different seasons, we'll hold on to something either usually by freezing or often by drying and just wait until their other parts are ready or maybe we can ferment at a particular temperature because um, with our equipment, we have to be fairly seasonable, seasonal about how we uh, ferment at temperatures. So doing a, we haven't done a single tree walnut beer, and I think that would be neat to either use the green walnuts or the black walnuts later in the season. Do you have a particular favorite of the tree beers that you've done already? 
I always tell people, I think the single tree hickory is probably one of the most unique and expressive of our woods. Um, just because there are hickory trees that grow all around the brewery. I mean, in the fall when they're dropping their nuts, they sound like you know, <laughs> baseballs hitting the top of our mm -hmm. metal roof and they just scare the hell out of people while they're drinking <laughs> underneath. But they, yeah, hickory is just such a big part of our woods. That one to me feels like, it feels like here. And the fact that a lot of people here when they, when they smoke meats, they smoke with hickory. So that toasted hickory bark aroma for a lot of people, to them, it smells like, you know, a long smoked, um, you know, pork butt or something that they make on a Sunday and have with family or even toasting marshmallows over the fire. There's, there's a really comforting aroma to, to that toasted hickory bark aroma. So usually the last question that I ask in these interviews is what story is your beer telling? Uh, but, you know, as you've expressed, each of these beers is kind of telling its own story of these different trees. Getting away from the technical and the sensory aspects of it, can you tell me a little bit of, of what these beers mean to you? Like the stories of each of these beers with these trees, what that means to you? I mean, there's a definitely maybe the, the simple answer, which is that you know, they really convey our place in the woods, um, our place on earth here in Southern Illinois. I think they're one of the most unique additions that we add to our beer. And, and Aaron and I were talking about, maybe this was a couple of years ago, I think, how many, uh, could all of the beers that we have on tap um, on a given weekend be tree beers and we looked up at our list and we were we thought you know I think eight out of nine of these beers are tree beers like this one has a leaf this one has bark this one has root this one has a branch from a tree you know it's just it's become so second nature for us and we're surrounded by trees I mean we're literally our brewery is in the woods and you know there were times, especially early on, when we would come in for a brew day and not know what we were going to brew. We would get some mash ready and then walk out into the woods and pick some things and put that into the beer. I miss doing that, actually. We still do that every now and again. But inevitably, you're going to pick some piece of a tree and you put it into a beer, really. So yeah, I for me, it's it really is the beer we're making. It's the beer that comes from our woods. It's the beer that we wanted to make, I think, ultimately. I think it's probably the beer that most closely aligns with what we wanted Scratch to be. Marika and Aaron's friends over at Fontaflora Brewing in North Carolina partnered last year with Jester King Brewery in Texas on Extending Branches, a stein beer made with Texas peach leaves and olive and juniper branches and North Carolina birchwood. Stein beers represent an ancient brewing process and are made by heating the wort with rocks heated in a fire, and the resulting caramelization of sugars that happens around the red-hot rocks provides a fascinating depth of malt flavor. This beer instantly brought to my mind moss-covered riparian tree roots reaching down from the edge of a forest into a splashing, rocky stream. It's full of tumbling notes of diesel, dill, sweet peach, sun-dried wood, mineral-rich water, and flavors I only have images for. A blue teal sky, 
green moss creeping up the timeless musculature of the roots. Here and there around the beer world, brewers are experimenting with the flavor possibilities of more exotic trees as well. Trefontaine in Rome, Italy is an abbey brewery run by Trappist monks who grow six different kinds of eucalyptus on the grounds of their monastery. They use the fragrant leaves in their Belgian-style triple, lending a unique flavor to the elegant beer. Numerous breweries have worked with Palo Santo and Ambarana, South American hardwoods with rich spice character. I recently opened a 2016 bottle of Dogfish Head Palo Santo Marin, an imperial brown ale aged in Palo Santo fooders. When the beer was young, the potent character of this spicy hardwood was somewhat overpowering, but the intervening half a decade has mellowed out those wood flavors and integrated them into the oxidized, dessert-wine-like flavors of the beer's malt base. Chocolate-covered raisin and fig with underlying cinnamon and warm mahogany led to a beautiful glass for slow sipping. In Portland, Oregon, beaned bar maker Cloud Forest infuses their Holy Wood Bar with Palo Santo as well, though I haven't had the chance to taste it. I'm hoping they'll offer that one again soon. Another Oregon bean bar chocolate maker has worked with a type of tree ingredient in a bar that got deep into my subconscious when I first tasted it in 2019. Mackenzie River spent half a decade putting out thought-provoking bars with whimsical descriptions at Map Chocolate before shifting her attention to providing education through the Next Batch Chocolate School and ethical, flavorful baking chocolate through Spoon and Pod. When I first tasted Map's Starry Night Bar, a Belize 60% dark milk bar made with Icelandic sea salt, pine bud syrup, and fur tips, I felt transported. Knit gloves, crunchy with snow. Moonlight through tree trunks on the sugared crust of snow on the forest floor. The impossibly lonely howl of truck tires on a distant country highway when everything else is still. I tasted the bar, and I was in that forest, wandering through moonlit, snow-blanketed trees as I have done so many times in my life, as a child, a teenager, an adult. Different forests, different nights, different qualities to the snow and the cold, that same aching, lonely wonder. My heart tugs always towards snow, toward the north, toward pine and cold and that burn in the fingertips just before you come back inside from a wild, frigid night. This chocolate incarnated the feeling of those nights, that forest, the Icelandic sea I stood in front of just a few years ago on a wicked winter day. I've become friends with Mackenzie since first tasting that bar. Flavor speaks to us in similar ways, tugging at the sleeves of our memories and asking to be picked up and ruffled and held. I spoke with Mackenzie recently about Starry Night and a similar snowflake-shaped bar she released just before the holidays in 2020, this time with Norwegian sea salt. I somehow, I don't know where, but I read about Magolio pine bud syrup. You know, I live in Oregon, the land of trees, and we've talked about this. When I lived in Idaho, so I was a river guy in the Grand Canyon and then spent the winters in Idaho, so very two very different, you know, environments, but we were based in Flagstaff. Oh, it's a river guide. That's where the warehouse was. So Flagstaff is a high altitude. Mm-hmm. And the thing coming off of the dry, dusty Grand Canyon is as soon as you get back to Flagstaff, it's like, you're just, it smells like the pine. The aroma is, I can, I can remember it right now as I'm describing it. I can just sense it again. So in the winters, I'm living in Idaho for many years and um work during the day and I would ski at night. I was 
a cross-country ski racer. So you have to get your, you know, kilometers in when you can. And um, I love, I love skiing at night, maybe because it's besides darkness, the snow casts a certain reflection. So you can see where you're going, you're on a trail. Like if you've got lost, like how would you, you couldn't, right? It's like a groomed trail through the woods, but you know, you're not really seeing anything and it's super quiet. So you're not having to think about sound, but you're just engulfed to me in, in aroma and smell. And you can smell the trees just so beautiful. I just, I loved it. And so when I made the starting art, starting night bar, when I got to that place that this is the bar, that to me was if my food memory, you know, my memories of the smell put into a food form, right. Put into bar form. So anyway, yeah, that's, that's what I was going for with that. But anyway, so I found this pine bud syrup made from Magulio pines. It's in Italy. This one woman had the a permit to forage the pine buds in the spring. She would pick the pine buds off and then put them in these big like urns, which would get filled with rainwater. And then they would soak all summer. And then um, in the fall, she would um, distill it into a syrup and the bottles are tiny. And, you know, at the time, as a person who started a business with $50, to spend, you know, like $30 on a bottle of the syrup was like a huge risk. And I didn't realize because I was still so new at making chocolate and just branching into inclusions. I mean, I'd done some like pretty basic ones. It didn't occur to me. I, like I heard the word syrup and I wasn't thinking water-based. So when I got the bottle and the, the smell was like incredible. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> how am I going to get this in the chocolate? Right. And I talked to John Alchemy about it. And his first off the cuff thing was, okay, what you're going to do is you're going to soak the nibs in it. And I'm like, that little bottle was really expensive. (laughs) I might soak a few nibs in it. And so I worked out a process of, I would soak nibs. I would soak actually a pretty small amount of nibs in relation to the rest of the nibs going in the bar. Although dark milk bars, um, like in one of the tiny grinders, if it's a dark chocolate, I can put like a hundred ounces of nibs. Dark milk is going to be about 50 because you have to have so much more cocoa butter um, in relation to the fact that you're putting in milk powder, which is a, a cocoa butter crystal inhibitor. It doesn't want to temper. So you have to make sure you have plenty of cocoa butter also because you're adding in this fiber mass of the um, milk powder, right? You don't want it to be too thick. It needs to have flow. So I, I would in, intensely soak nibs in the pine bud syrup. And I worked out a drying process. I don't have a dehydrator. I worked out a drying process and I did go through two bottles of the syrup before I figured out how I, well, I, I don't have any regrets, right? I like, I love that bar, but I remember thinking maybe I was making like a foolish mistake, right? I didn't even know if anyone was going to like it. It's kind of an off the wall thing. But then you have that moment of like, you love something so much that you're like, if I love it, somebody else has got to love it out there too. So I figured out a process of uh, soaking the nibs and a way that I was treating them before and after I soaked them. And I put those in the batches. And then the first ones just had salt on the back for the first couple of years. And then as I got better with inclusions and I realized I, you know, I'm living in the land of Doug Furs. And so I started drying out Doug for tips in the spring. They're bright green They're I love the flavor of them. And so I would dry them a series of drying of them and then 
grind it up because you, I didn't want just like these sticks, you know, that got pretty dry. That was on the backside of the bar. So it added this extra hit of aroma, right? And I literally thought without having a way to gauge it, I thought if I'm putting these on the back of the bar, they're going to be infusing the chocolate as it's sitting in the wrapper. They're going to be adding something in. And so um, that was sort of the evolution of that bar. And then with the salt change too. Originally I used Icelandic sea salt, which I loved. And then I switched it to this Norwegian sea salt that if you, when you see it, it looks like snowflakes when you cap, you know, capture a snowflake. It's very flat. It's fabulous. I haven't found any other salt like this. And it has a very light brininess to it that again, now I'm, I'm changing sort of the personality of the bar, right? The brininess, it's just a light brininess of that salt. I thought you've got this like sweet dark milk bar and the piney aroma is bringing in a cooling, cooling kind of sweetness. And then the, the salt to have that brininess, I thought it just to me made sense because I'm picturing Pacific Northwest, right? Like snow falling on cedars. Like when you've got that like snow and the giant evergreens we have here, the the bar sort of went west from Idaho, (laughs) right? Into this whole other, well, here I am thing, so. In mid-February, the Midwest and East Coast were buried by a fierce winter storm. Here in Western Ohio, we got about a foot of snow and howling winds followed by extreme cold. A couple nights after the storm, my wife and I drove to a nearby nature preserve and walked into the black woods, the forest floor sleeping beneath its sacred covering of snow, the air haunted and holy beneath the moonlight and pinpricks of stars. You can hear snow on the ground in a forest at night, I swear it. My heart feels like it's floating just outside my body in the stillness of a winter forest, though the air in my lungs feels more real and substantial than ever. We folded into the hidden shelter beneath the lowest branches of a grove of towering white pines, a secret fortress against the night, and I pulled out two pieces of Mackenzie's pine bud snowflake with Norwegian sea salt. The flavors of this enchanted bar, the aromas rushing up the retronasal passages to cozy close to the base of our brains, bled outward into the moment and froze in the night, locking moment to memory. As the last bit of chocolate melted away, we stepped out of the woods onto the prairie and lied down on the frozen earth. The sky was so clear it seemed scraped raw, and we traced the paths of satellites high above Ohio's winter through a cold much, much deeper. Later, back home, I paired the final pieces of the pine bud snowflake with Live Oak Brewing's Old Tree Hugger, an elegant English barley wine full of notes of dark bread, caramel, pine, and orange marmalade, The pairing was deep winter with the promise of warmth, orange like a rumor in the depth of a February pine grove. Other bean-to-bar chocolate makers have worked with evergreen flavors, including Hans Westerink from Violet Sky Chocolate in Indiana, whom you heard in episode 10, in his Pine and Citrus Bar, as well as standout chocolate in Sweden in their Nordic Nature Spruce Shoots Bar with cacao from Oco Caribe in the Dominican Republic, and Karuna chocolate in Italy in their stone pine bar with Tanzanian cacao. While pine flavors in beer are most commonly from hop varieties like Chinook, Simcoe, or Cascade, actual evergreens are used in some beers. 
Spruce dip beers are very common spring seasonal, and many Nordic brewing traditions include the use of spruce, pine, and juniper as a standard part of traditional home brewing. I'll include a link in the show notes to a comprehensive article on those practices. From the clean, heady scent of evergreens, to the spice of tropical hardwoods, to the earthy variety of oak, maple, and hickory, brewers and chocolate makers are helping us look at the flavor of trees in new ways. We need trees. They purify the air we breathe and create oxygen for our lungs. And despite the fact we're cutting them down at an alarming rate, they offer us a bounty of foods and flavors to enjoy. You can learn more about Artur Cesar Erlach and his book, The Flavor of Wood, as well as Shea, Mackenzie Rivers of Map Chocolate and Spoon and Pod, and Marka Josephson and Scratch Brewing in the show notes, where you can also find links to the other chocolate makers and brewers we talked about today. In the next episode of Bean to Barstool, we'll zero in on the familiar flavor of maple. We'll talk with chocolate makers and brewers who've used maple syrup, sugar, or sap in their creations. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bean to Barstool. Thank you.